The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. With episodes now passing the 300 mark in the Stages archive, it's time that we revisit conversations featured in our previous seasons. Stages spotlight such episodes in case you missed them the first time round, or so that you can simply savour a second listen. Either way, you'll be accessing precious oral histories from the people who were there on and around our stages. Kate Fitzpatrick is one of our great actors. She was born in Perth but grew up in Adelaide. It was in this city that she developed her passion for art and cricket and classical music. Her potential as a visual artist was recognised by Geoffrey Smart, who awarded her a travelling art scholarship to Japan. Her love of cricket led her to an appointment as the world's first female cricket commentator. And classical music has sustained her through a vast array of experiences in a career that has rewarded and challenged. Kate was there at the beginning of a burgeoning Australian theatre, working in seminal works at the Jane Street Theatre, the Old Tote Theatre and Nimrod. She created the role of Magenta in the original Australian production of The Rocky Horror Show and began her career alongside iconic Australian directors like John Bell, Rex Cramphorn and Jim Sharman. Kate joined me for episode 99 of the podcast over a long lunch and a candid conversation. She detailed an extraordinary life in the theatre and some extraordinary experiences with some extraordinary people. Kate has since become a regular on the Stages podcast, co-hosting our annual Christmas episode. She is tremendous fun and tells a great story, as you'll hear in this compelling conversation from the Stages Vault. So so you still suffer from asthma? Yep. Yeah, I never grew out of it. Bronchial asthmatic. Asthma, but these days not so much bronchitis because I, I get a tingling in my throat and the doctor gives me antibiotics and so I don't I don't get bronchitis, but or very rarely. Some people are lucky and grow out of it. I know, a lot do. Yeah. But th- that's a condition that you share with Patrick White. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, famously, when the um, it was Gough Whitlam's re-election campaign. And we were at the Opera House. Because so it's 74 or something. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yep, I think so. And they'd invited a person to represent every kind of facet of the of life. you know. So Michael Wendon was sport, who was a great Olympic swimmer at the time. And uh, Judith Wright, poetry. And John Bell, the theatre. And uh, Patrick White was literature. And I was covering the film kind of part of it. They were the days. <laughs> and... Um, you know, so it went on, like a really extraordinary list of people. And Patrick and I were standing in the wings, and he, he was going on before me, I was straight after him. And uh, I started wheezing, he said, Why are you wheezing? And I said, I just, he said, where's your buffer? Because in the days of not preventers, they had preventers now, so I really don't get it a lot, you know, hardly at all. And uh, and I said, I left it at home, and he he said, He'd never, ever let anyone use his puffer, but he would 
he took it out of his pocket. It was in a box. It always kept it in a box, and let me use it. It was like this. Um, he thought it was incredible because <laughs> he'd never done it before. Uh, so I had a few puffs and it was good, you know. So that's an incredible bonding. Was that he, early in your relationship? Oh no, we'd known each other a bit. We'd known each other since um, O'Malley. Legend he, of King O'Malley. Yeah, he right. he came about. It was only on for ten days at the Jane Street Theatre, but he came four times, I think. And after the first time, they said, "Oh, Patrick White wants to meet you," and I I actually didn't know who he was. I'm ashamed to say I was quite young. I'm, <clears throat> I had read a few books, but none of his. And um, so I went and met him. And I remember it was raining, you know, outside that little tin shed. And there's this very tall man. He's wearing a raincoat and a beret. And, and Manoli, who's, who's shorter, standing beside him wearing a raincoat. And uh, I, I thought he looked like an old spy, you know, like a like a John le Carrier kind of character. <laughs> and I just was totally captivated by him. And he very sort of serious I, I I thought and so I thought I'd crack a joke to sort of cheer him up a bit and he laughed a lot and then we I don't know spent a couple of minutes laughing about something but then he came again and they said he's back you've got to go and see him and I thought right so I just I rushed out and bought a few books and read them after that <laughs> I, I, I'm a, I, um... not that we ever talked about it ever about his writing ever right. but he knew I'd read and sometimes he'd give me once he thought I hadn't when I first moved to Sydney, I, I had a, a little job for a while sitting Manoli oh, in the house. I'd, really? I'd go over for an afternoon and just spend a couple of hours with him. Uh-huh. And he told me a great story about Joan Sutherland, who had said to Patrick, when are you going to write a book that I can read between London and New York? Because they're all too long. <laughs> <laughs> That's very funny. I love that. Yeah, yeah. God. I loved him. I really, And I still miss him. I still kind of... I mean, he was very cross with me sometimes. and but You didn't, didn't speak for a good six months at one Oh, stage. he didn't speak to me. I would have spoken to him. Right. But well, he, he wrote a play for me called Big Toys, and he had a party at his house on New Year's Eve and, uh, in Martin Road. And he stood on a chair, and he um, made a speech at this, part, this wonderful party. He was, a, he was a terrific cook. You know, he used to make all this many Greeky sort of things. And... Um, Anyway, he made a speech and he gave me this hand-typed on onion skin copy of Big Toys in one of those grippy folders, you know, those, those ones along, that grip along the edge. And I clutched it to my bosom. I was incredibly... I had no idea. I, Jim knew, but I didn't know. It was Jim Sharman. Yeah, because he was directing it, of course. Yeah. And, and, of course, Max Cullen, whom Patrick loved in Season of Susper. It was because he was so happy about Season of Susperella. He was thrilled with me and Max and the play. Because that was the first big revival, wasn't it? After yeah. After original production. Well, he said he would never write again. The original production, they said he'd written it to corrupt the morals of the children working in it. And he, that was it. He said he was never going to uh, write another play. And then Jim revived it. And it was such a, a huge success. I mean, there were people literally used to line up the sides of the eyes and across the back, you know, to watch it. And... He was so thrilled. He was moved by the reception, the critical reception, and the public. You know, the, the punters loved it. We loved it. So he wrote this play, and so and he gave me the copy, and I'm clutching it. And um, that was January, January, you know, first. And something like three weeks later, I'd been invited to go to dinner on the Britannia, and I thought, 
he'll never find how will he ever find out you know because Patrick wasn't a monarchist was he absolutely rabid anti-monarchist like like totally rabid and uh, by the stage and so I mean you didn't even he would talk to, in terms of people being kind of dogs you know <laughs> and I thought how is he ever going to find this out so I thought alright so I'm going to do it I couldn't resist it dinner on the Britannia you know there were 80 people or something like that and um, so I went and the next day on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald it said Last night, the Queen had 60 or 80 people to dinner. The Governor and um, Miss, the governor and Lady Cutler, the Premier and Mrs. Rannan, gave Fitzpatrick. <laughs> <laughs> so Patrick just went, boom, all over bloody Centennial Park. Just exploded. You could hear it from where I lived, I think. And he said, that's it. You know, she's out. Um, Jim said, you wrote the play for her. You can't just... Oh, right. Had you started rehearsal yet? Or no, was, we were, no. It was scheduled for that year. Yeah, oh, yeah, we yeah. were doing it in, in the winter. In yeah. He said, absolutely, you know, not being in the play. Jim said, that is totally ridiculous. You've just got it, you know, you wrote it for her. Everyone knows you did. You gave it to her at the party bar. And for all those months until we started, which June maybe, and the first day of rehearsal, he, he and Manoli came in. Manoli smiled at me secretly. <laughs> Patrick just completely ignored me. And there were only three people in the cast. It wasn't like it was a cast of thousands or something. So he met Arthur, was thrilled, said hello to Max, to, just ignored me. So we read it and we rehearsed and it got up to the dress rehearsal in the parade theatre. And um, I I walked into my dressing room on, on the opening night. The dress rehearsal, I saw he was there and he stayed around for a bit and sort of watched, you know, but still didn't speak to me. And on the, on the opening night, I walked into my dressing room and there was half a cherry tree had been cut down. It was like unbelievable amounts of blossom, you know, so beautiful. So I think it would have been oh, or beginning of August or something by now, spring, you know, sort of near spring. And he, um, and also there was an engraving of Ellen Terry as Beatrice and saying, I had rather hear my dog bark at a crow than a man swear he loves me. You know that wonderful yeah. <laughs> And it was signed, Yours truly, Ellen Terry, 1887. And I thought, he's forgiven me. I thought, fantastic. Because then we got in the car. He said he wanted to go to dinner after the show. And no one thought that he would do that. So we rang the La Rumba opposite the clock. It was a South American restaurant. We said, if we pay you X, will you stay open? And they said, yes. So we all came. And I went in a Volkswagen with um, Patrick and Manoli. Anyway, when we got there, he opened the door for me. And I, I'd left the, all the blossom in my dressing room, but I was clutching the Ellen Terry. And as I put my foot hit the pavement, he said, did I ever tell you about my dinner with the Queen? <laughs> I said, no, I said. And of course, that was like a red rag to a bull. So we, we went into the restaurant. And as we sat down, I said, Patrick's going to tell us about his dinner with the Queen. And he looked at me and went, oh, like that. And there's a photo in, he put it in one of his books too, I think, and I've got it in name dropping, where he's looking at me and laughing in shock because that literally had the words that just come out of my mouth. And then he did. He proceeded to tell us about these two, lunch and dinner that he'd had with the Queen. And you're probably the only one that could cross that line. I think so. Yeah. But see, there some maybe, maybe that's why he liked me, I think. Do you think you filled some sort of daughter role as well for him? 
I always regarded him as a father. I would like to think that. Yeah. And he certainly treated me like a father a lot. He would kind of, you know, admonish me and give me sort of advice on various boyfriends and things like that. <laughs> so he didn't like them or whatever. He would tell me what he thought. The born in Perth? Born in Perth. Nedlands. Nedlands. Mm-hmm. Nedlands District House. My grandparents lived in Claremont and my dad, who joined the army at 15, turning 16 and was in the Middle East before he'd had a shave, you know, was in Syria. He, he it's was extraordinary, actually, isn't it, to think of uh, boys going off to, to well, war? They were all boys. Mm, mm. And he had, um, uh, he was WX80, the 80th man in Western Australia to enlist. They took him. I mean, can you believe that? Wow. And he and he was in this uh, the 6th Division. That was the last division of the First World War that became the first division of the Second World War. And um, so he was there in the Middle East the whole way through, a bit in Europe and then New Guinea. And then they said so many ha- had died of his, uh, the group he'd been in the whole time. I think out of 3,000, there were like 300. So they said, you can join the Air Force or, you know, go home. So he joined the Air Force and learned how to fly, and then the war ended. So he had to go back to school. He had to go back and... Learn a trade like, or something. Well, no, he had to, to pass his exams. Right. So he, had, he went back and did the leaving, leaving honours at school. And he's married by this time. And driving cabs and uh, 23. So he went to the university. And, um, and be, he wanted to be an aeronautical engineer, but the course was five years or something. And geology was... So he did became a geologist, one of the very first sort of exploration kind of geologists. And um, and during that, by the time he was twenty six, I I arrived. And it was in the the Nedlands District Hospital, which I believe Bob Hawke was bar- was born there as well. Okay, all I mean, the greats. <laughs> now, <laughs> Bob Hawke never remembered you, did he? Yeah, he hardly ever did. We we kind of and we met a lot. So on chat shows and well, uh, uh, Parkinson, for example, yeah. I, I did two Parkinsons. I did one when he was still having a bit of a drink, and one the following year when he'd given up drinking and was going to be the prime minister. And um, and it was mainly the cricket, like being Parky, of course, and being a cricket lover fanatic. He on the first show there were three fig- cricket fanatics, and on the second show there were not. There was there were two actors and Bob, and Bob was very straight and very serious and all that. But in the meantime, I was doing, um, it was it was like Who Said That? N- like my word, it was called Who Said That? With Philip Adams, you know, on, on radio, on the mm. ABC radio. And so it was Professor Joe Burke and Philip Adams and me with a panel. And then we'd have people come on. And I mean, I swear to God, Bob Hawke must have come on at, at least six times and he never, <laughs> never remembered me. This was before he saw the drink. And I even introduced him when the when they dug the first thing at NIDA, you know, for the... I was writing speeches for the arts minister at the time and I was on the board. So I had to introduce Hawke while he dug the uh, first bit of sod for the NIDA building. Still not a clue, I don't think, who I was. You were writing for a, a liberal arts minister, though, weren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I wrote speeches for Peter Collins. How did that job come about? I was, uh, I needed, because I brought, I brought my son up by myself, I never asked his father for money, and his, his father's a French architect who lives in France, and that was it, you know, I kind of ran away and did it, which is probably very foolhardy, 
I mean, seeing Joe is now a great member of the family and they're all very happy. <laughs> he goes to France and Corsica all the time, so there you go. But it would, it would have been very difficult as a single mum. It was it? very difficult. Yeah. And I, I couldn't... I mean, I had always earned more than enough to support me, but suddenly it's, diff it's different when you're supporting a, a child. And I did it for a couple of years and then I got nervous and I thought I need a job and I didn't have a clue what sort of job I do and um, I was having my hair done and there was a woman sitting opposite me and she had this crazy looking wonderful baby with bright red hair like you know it looked like a little wig orangey red hair and she said they said that they wanted to take the stuff off her, her foils off or something and the baby needed a bottle I said oh I'll give it a bottle so I gave the baby a bottle Afterwards, she said, oh, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm looking for a job. You know, I kind of decided I'm going to give up acting and, and uh, earn some real money. And she said, oh, you should speak to my husband. And I said, I didn't have a clue who she was. Or, And she said, oh, he's the arts minister. And I said, oh, really? And I thought, liberal government? It must be a liberal government. And, of course, I'd never, you know. She gave me a card and then she organised the meeting and I went into, you know, to um, Macquarie Street and then I met Peter and as I shook his hand I said, look, I have to tell you I have never voted for the Liberal Party and, and he said, no actor of your generation has ever voted for the Liberal Party. He was fantastic. He was kind of, um, and I said, look, I won't do anything to do with policy or any of that. I just do the art stuff. Yeah, craft the words. Mm. What so, did Patrick think of that? He was he was in two minds about it. He kind of understood, you know, that. But he didn't mind Peter Collins. He thought he was quite a good arts minister. And uh, I suppose the great days when we had arts ministers. Exactly yeah. when you had who was actually a dedicated arts minister, not a sort of. Even though he, that they started, they put started putting stuff on Peter. You know, him giving him other kind of things as well, ministry. So I, I ended up being writing. All, five speeches a week minimum, I reckon. And then sometimes he'd lock me in there, we'd get into the lift and he'd press the button like in the movies and he'd say, what do you think? Of so he'd make me go to meetings and watch what was going on and say, what do you think? I said, God, you know, that guy's, I'd say what I think. And he would, uh, I think I was the only person that he could get a kind of different opinion, you know. So that surprises me that you're not Dame Kate Fitzpatrick. <laughs> I know. They've told, I've only ever got the uh, Queen's Jubilee Medal. Right. I've never, you know, I haven't never been given a, an AO. How were the nuns at school? Because um, you had a convent education, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, right. It, the whole, and I went through various forms of nuns. There were the kind of, the early ones were... Um, Various forms of it. <laughs> one type of nun. Well, sort of. Yeah. There were the ones in Western Australia. I started school when I was just turned four, and they were sacrocurs, and they were really incredible. In fact, they taught me to do maths with these coloured rods, and it wasn't until I was in Japan, aged 14, 15, that I saw that we went to some school, and there were these kids, and I said, oh, my God, I know how that works. I hadn't seen them since I, all that for nine years or something. And it was cuisinier, you know, it was the yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, and they, the nuns there were amazing. I mean, they I mean, I could read and write before I went to school, and I could count to a hundred and tell the time and do all that stuff. I used to take myself on the trolley bus into Perth. <laughs> Can you believe it? Mum be standing at the bus stop, sort of 
hoping I'd get off at the right stop. Wow. Because she was pregnant. So. Yeah. She'd be waving. Once it did, I did wave at her as we went past. But so they gave me a scholarship to year seven, to um, year six or whatever it was, whatever the, to stay with them because Dad said we were going to South Australia because he was, you know, working for the, I think it was either Geosurveys or Santos or all of those people that he worked for. And so the nuns wanted to keep me. They went, uh, I was four. <laughs> was there a boarding school? Or? Yeah. yeah. Okay. They're going to keep me there. Oh. I turned five at the end of the year. And uh, so I was always like three, two to three years, you know, kind of beneath the age of the people. But I made up for it in later life by repeating. Right. <laughs> Did you thrive on that single sex education, just, just working with girls? Or did well, that yeah. become a little... Well, it was... It, it, it kind of worked for me because I was only, I mean, at that school I was interested in school. Then we went to a, um, in Adelaide, the first school we went to was actually a mixed, but run by nuns. So they had boys there. And um, and I just ignored, I mean, I had brothers. I kind of didn't mind. And then at St. Aloysius in Adelaide, my mother had gone there, my grandmother, my great-grandmother. My sister and I went. And I was repeating year Ten, but I was fourteen, so you know, kind of, I was really shocking. I didn't do any work at all. I could sell my books new at the end of the year. They were kind of. So when did drama creep into your life? Was that was that well, at school? At, you were doing school and that productions. That was at this school, and yeah. the, the, at uh, Saint Aloysius, because what they would do is um, had school plays, and. Uh, and they had a little church hall with a stage. And I mean, it was a beautiful. It was. It's right in the middle of, of Victoria Square in Adelaide. You know, next to the cathedral, and so it's that all those old buildings beside the cathedral now new ones, I think. And tennis courts. That's that school. And the different where your other question about boys comes in, is that they were so strict. These nuns, they were very smart. They were real. Like five of them had major degrees or one or two you know I mean the headmistress of PA was made a full professor at Adelaide University I mean really That's smart mm. and I thought they were old bags I mean they must have been late 30s <laughs> just <laughs> like really young and um yes well a wimple does uh, I, uh, well ever, it does have, have oh my ever, god have you ever played a nun on yes, stage once, yeah, just yes just right. on, on film right. but and I know it does it does wonders covers the neck, you know, gets rid of the whole of the jowl thing, you know what I mean? And covers the forehead if yeah. you've got wrinkles right. on the forehead. Just see eyes and mouth. Just see that little mask, you know, a little yeah. tiny mask over the face. And uh, I remember when going back to school after the Christmas holidays once and they'd gotten out of the habit and there were all these old women walking around. We just went, oh! we were horrified. Start seeing drag queens out of <laughs> It was exactly, the the, it was very, very similar. Because ours wore black and white in the winter and then just white in the summer, so they looked like angels, you know. And then suddenly they're walking around wearing cardigans and kind of old ratty-looking skirts. Yes. And it was out of costume. Oh! I was going to be a nun until they got out of the costume. That was absolutely... You were, were you? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. All girls who went to school. When they had the costumes, all girls. But anyway, they always do these plays. So I played Henry Higgins in Pygmalion. I played Henry VIII in Man for All Seasons. And I played... Um, Henry V, didn't you? And Henry V. And I played... Your career is based on Henry. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? I've not even thought of that. Well, and, and you get, have you done Uncle Henry in Wizard of Oz? No. No, no. no it's coming. No. It's coming. <laughs> I would like that. And I've done um, 
and a couple of Joan of Arcs, the Henri's one, the Lac, and uh, and the Shaw one. And my mother knitted chain mail for me out of, <laughs> you know, with those great uh, big. Yeah. So and, you get, so you get the thick. Yeah, thick of, thick um, thread and great thread. big needles like that, and then she spray painted it silver. You see, so it went Fantastic. quite sticky, and yeah. it looked wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Were your parents supportive of you forging a career in the arts? I uh, know. Right. Well, my mum was a bit. Being an artist. Or, yes. Well, she she sort of because I, I she she nursed me through the ballet disaster of getting tits. You know that was. All oh, right, and so it was working out that your career it was in ballet was not going to happen. And so I was going to join a priest, a wonderful ballet school, and and all of my I'm not kidding, uh, classmates. You know, of let's say ten of us went on to the Australian Ballet Company and all became like really big, di- and there was me. That was, was so depressing. It's criminal, isn't it? You sort mm. of, uh, you see these young girls with uh, all the passion and talent in the world, but because And great of legs and arms, you know what I mean? Perfect. Boom, like this. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it just, it was just overnight and hideous. I remember the girls in the, in the dressing room on the Saturday morning and they just looked at me and they actually got my leotard and pulled down with, like everyone was revolted they nearly threw up you know just <laughs> so I've always hated them ever since and she so I used to bind you know they you used to get by um, elastic bandage right. and you bind yourself flat before class anyway so funny but they had a very nice um, kind of drama teacher there attached to the ballet school and she said maybe I should because I was doing these plays at school and things and she was really Really nice woman, an English woman. And she suggested neither. And I went, because my father, of course, was fear. I mean, he wanted me to go to the university. Because I did have Use a brain, brain, believe it yeah, or not. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. My brain's gone. But in those days, I had a brain. And um, so the first exam I ever, the first, they decided to have public exams and doing the um, chemistry exam. And it was under the corrugated iron roof of the motor pavilion in the Adelaide showgrounds. And they had, and there were boys, we had never seen, I mean, we had brothers. So sometimes you went to their school and saw a footy match or a cricket match or something. And they were all younger. I mean, and some girls had brothers who were older. But other than that, we'd never seen a boy. And suddenly there were thousands of them. And brothers don't have pheromones. No. Oh, no. I mean, you wouldn't even, and usually you wouldn't look at their friends if they're on fire either. So we were sitting in these exams and there were just literally boys like all around us and people were just going, <laughs> I mean, no. But the funny thing was that day in Adelaide during the summer, it used to get to 110 every day at midday, you know, just routinely. And it did. But under the corrugated iron roof of the motor pavilion, it was 130. Mm. And according to Uncle Rupert's newspaper, they had on the front page 130, you know, scandal exams and blah, blah, blah like this. And um, I remember looking at the chemistry exam, and they had bulldogs from the university carrying rubbish bin lids with little paper cups full of salted water up and down the thing. And uh, people were vomiting and fainting or kind of flirting, you know, with the boys. <laughs> it was an absolute mess. You know. And I looked at the um, at the paper, and it said Dalton's Atomic Theory, and I thought, because my dad had said about. Um, must have been a few months, six months or something before. He said, what's this? I said, oh, Dalton's Atomic Theory. He was on one of his three-month visits. And he said, he said, what's that? And I explained it to him. 
And he said, what's the name of your teacher? And he said, would you put your hand up tomorrow and say, if that's Dalton's atomic theory, how does she explain Hiroshima and Nagasaki? So I said, excuse me, sister. I actually got detention. I think I even got, I even got hit for it, for asking the question. So when I saw it on the, um, I thought, right. So I said, you know, was it a joke? Was it a deliberate kind of trick? You know, why we, they, why on earth were they teaching this without saying that it had been debunked? And you know, and many, and I named the number of years ago that, with the splitting of the atom and the atom bomb and all that crap. So I banged on about that. Didn't answer anything else. And I can remember the, um, remember the fly, uh, the paper hitting the front lawn and the fly screen door sort of flapping and and then flapping again and my father coming in and said you got an E for chemistry and I said really that's great I only answered one question and he went off his scone it was 45 marks you see an E wow he said if you'd attempted another question you would have got I said oh, I just talked about the Tom- Dalton's atomic theory I mean so then he sent me to do IQ tests for two weeks of the holidays every day and they gave him an assessment well, I didn't see it till I was 21, and by that time, my mother had um, decided to... I went. I auditioned for Nida. He didn't know he was in the bush, and got in. I don't know how... In fact, I it was at Theatre 62 in Adelaide, which is a little circular theatre down near the beach, and I actually tripped and fell down the stairs onto the stage. I actually fell onto the stage, and he just laughed. It was Tom Brown laughed at me, and um, I did whatever I was... I don't know what it was, a couple of things. A couple of monologues. And yeah, you know, and um, and got in. God knows. They must have had a quota, I think, because I don't know how I did. And Mum said, all right, so she paid for me out of the um, housekeeping money. And I went for a whole year and Dad didn't know because I'd come back for the holidays when he'd come down from the bush and no one said anything. And so it wasn't until at the end of first year I got a Commonwealth Advanced Education Scholarship and then he was told, you see, that I was A, at a university and B, that I'd been given a scholarship. So he, he kind of calmed Came down. Came around. Mm, mm. Sort of. But then I found the letter and it said I should do medicine and become... Oh, he told me when he read the letter years before. He said, oh, they've told you to go and see a psychiatrist. And when I read the thing, it said I should do medicine and become a psychiatrist. <laughs> so. Well, acting's a bit like psychiatry. Well, it is, yeah. it is. But, I mean, these people, were they would write and ask you to join Mensa. You know, it was, like, really odd. So I kind of did, but I've never done anything about it. I mean, it's ridiculous, I think. Who was in your year at NIDA? Uh, Gary MacDonald, Deirdre Rubinstein. Um, I'm trying to think of the ones that... There were... It, in first year, they had 20 girls and 20 boys. Right. And the second year, they took... Four girls and ten boys. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It was rough. Really, really rough. And the, my best friend that I made there was Rex Cramporn, who was doing the director's course. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was... So I used to help him with all of his sets and costumes and stuff. He used to paint. <laughs> he said, darling, I want everyone to wear... There was a chorus of 14, and they were all going to wear a 12-foot length of cheesecloth, or whatever it was, you know, as a kind of shawl and I said oh yeah that sounds good and he said and I need them to be from black navy and black purple to kind of ice blue and ice mauve he said you can do that don't you I said sure 
<laughs> so I can remember Penny. Oh no, it was Ron Reed, the great designer. He was a resident designer at the Toad. The most incredible you know, creator of beautiful clothes. And he told me to pin with safety pins um, on the rotary hoist there outside the old old theater. And then I just painted them by hand. And he told me, you know, about diluting, and I diluted it through. Tell me about Rex Cramphorn, because, I mean, that's the beauty of this conversation too. We can, um, like six degrees of yeah. separation, <laughs> yes, we can recall and celebrate. Well, that, that's um, how I met artists. him. Yeah. And uh, he, I met him on the first day, because, and he came up and talked to me. And I was wearing a, a Sanderson linen skirt that was reversible. I had two of them that one of my mother's friends had made me, and a little white shirt. And I had my grandfather's um, fob watch on a on a ribbon. I used to change the colour of the ribbon. And there were people who didn't wear shoes. There were people who were in bare feet. You know, I had never seen anything like it in my life. I just couldn't believe that people would walk around bare feet. So and, you're coming into this bohemian lifestyle yeah. after a. This is my first Several day at NIDA, and I went, school. yes, that's right, yeah. I was going, I mean, I was just absolutely, I mean, talk about the Virgin Bunny, I was absolutely gobsmacked. I suppose, you know, well, if it was anything like my year at drama school, everyone slept with everybody else. Yeah. You'd be encountering drugs for the first time, I guess. Mm-hmm. Alcohol. Yeah. Like, I mean, I don't really, I have the odd gin and tonic very, very rarely, because the only time I ever really got drunk because I didn't drink at all. I'm taking the pledge, you know what I mean? You yeah. took, and I wasn't 21, so you're supposed to not drink till you're 21. And I went to a party and had two tumblers full of gin. I've never been so... I mean, I didn't realise what it was, yeah. you know, gin and tonic. I mean, probably just two gin and tonics, but it made me feel ill. Well, if you've not had it before. Mm. And... Um, Remember that, that, I remember that dad learned teaching you to drink in those early days when you'd be so sick the world would just spin. I, mean, <laughs> I hated those days. And then we then we quickly became... Quickly new. became very... <laughs> and remember when you used to sort of drink sweet stuff and then it kind of became, you couldn't bear it. It got drier and drier, you know. But And, and drugs, I kind of was a trip mother. I wasn't a drug taker. I was a pathetic. I was the one that would sit under a... A tree in Glebe, where you know, three o'clock in the morning, and there'd be various people up in the tree trunks and or dotted around the park singing, "Magic is alive, music is afoot," you know, to each other across the thing. And I'd be sitting, thinking, "How much longer is this going to go on?" <laughs> because they'd be going like, "Oh, oh, oh!" I'd say, "Don't look at that, darling. Look at this." And they'd say, "Oh." So you were just watching out for everyone. Bloody trip, mother. That's mm. what I was. So, um, because it was still legal, really, LSD. You know, it was. Uh, at that time so I had a very hectic time and, and Rex Rex kind of looked after me he was older than me and he had already been to university and and he was and I was so totally in love with him I had absolutely no clue that he was gay I didn't know what a gay man was and I was just totally completely devotedly in love with him and he spent I thought nearly all of his time with me I didn't see that he had any time to sort of have another life at all did you work with him as a director? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did um, a couple... Well, he was a student as well, you see. Yeah. So I used to do his sets and costumes, but I did do one... In the second year, I did something with him. And then, of course, we got out of NIDA and uh, we managed to graduate. See, they only graduated two of the four girls too. That's right. And eight of the boys. Wow. It was really really rough when you think of nowadays when you know all of the training institutions around the country who are putting 
maybe 200 graduates into the industry every year and there's not an industry to support them all. Well, I was on the board of NIDA, that, so that was in the early 90s like, when I was writing speeches with men. The, um, they, and I think they put me on the board. Well, I know they put me on the board because they thought that maybe they'd get some money out of the men, you know. And, of course, I remember at the first meeting I explained, I said, you know, it's a bit like a cake and it's already cut up into slices. I said, I do have a $10,000 slice that I'm allowed to play with. And um, that's it. There's no money. There's no extra money. Anyway, and I remember saying that exactly that. be the budget for a show. Oh. Yeah. And I, I, I got it. I remember saying exactly what you said uh, during a board meeting once. I said, I'm really shocked that why are you building a bigger place to have more students? I said, there's no... I, it started off because someone said, oh, 90% of all people in work... Are NIDA graduates and I said but 90% of all NIDA graduates are not in work it was like there's hardly any work mm. yeah sure most of them were from NIDA in those days because that was the only school you know what I mean so it was only people like say Jackie Weaver or something who hadn't gone to a drama school but have been sort of famous for other reasons you know and but then became an actor it, I mean other than that there were always yes it's interesting to see a graduating year and how many are still doing it Five years later, ten oh, yeah. years later, fifteen years yeah. later. Yeah. yeah, that's why I cut. I mean, I do know that some of the boys are still working every now and then. And Deirdre, you know, she does quite well. She keeps doing yeah. stuff. Yeah. And Gary, see, Gary's sort of given it up. You know what I mean? He. Mm. I suppose if you stick with it long enough, your competition sort of drifts away. <laughs> and. <laughs> I'm still finding it hard. I, <laughs> I keep thinking maybe I'll just outlive them all, you know. Uh, you used to walk down the hill to NIDA with, oh, yeah. with a particular boy. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, because I, because my mother, um, through the parish priest, who had a great aunt living in Ramwick in a, a flat, and um, so she agreed for me to go and stay there, and uh, and mum paid the board, and she was a very strange woman. Actually, she kind of, if if I'd been living there now, I would have found her fascinating. She she would leave me these wonderful kind of Asian meals on the stove. I never saw it. She wasn't there when I got up and she wasn't there when I she was in her room. And she only had a radio, no TV. I'd never been in a flat. I'd never been in a place without a TV or a dog, you know, or lots of people. So it was kind of weird. I'd come back from NIDA and eat my dinner. Yeah, I know. And, go. <laughs> and in my room... There was a single bed, and there were shelves and various things, and a single wardrobe, those ones that then have a little thing attached with three drawers. And there would have been about five arrangements of artificial flowers. And I used to lie there sometimes thinking, you know, it was like a recyclable tomb, you know, a, you know, kind of funeral parlour. And she had a, a cupboard in her hall and had spring, summer, autumn and winter arrangements. She used to change them with the season. <laughs> so I was kind of in a very strange space where I lived and then I was going to NIDA where I was kind of confronted and shocked and people shouting at me to try and make me break through you know and do something and I was thinking holy shit this is just <laughs> terrible and every day I'd walk down the um, high street with this really good looking you know young bloke with long hair and I'd never asked him what he did I just presumed he was one of the students in the at the uni mm. And so every day he seemed to be at the top of High Street just when I kind of came out. I lived in the flat just near there and I come out and sort of, and we'd go down the, and 
he'd ask me questions and I'd say, he said, what do you think of, you know, and he'd name various tutors and, and I'd tell him, and he said, who do you think is good in your year? And I'd tell him and, or ask me so many questions, like absolutely incredible. And we'd get to the gates of NIDA and I'd usually lock, because they, they only let Margaret Barr and a few people, Keith, you know, park there. And so you'd have to squeeze in through the two door the gates. And um, this went on for, well, you know, eight, nine months or something. And then one day I was sent up to mid-toe, because we, we used to get dressed in the bottom part. It was kind of... There's a funny story about that too. Then they had those wooden stairs. The middle part was where the old Toad Theatre kept all their costumes and there were some offices there that had nothing to do with us. So we bypassed that to the top part, which was our dance studio, you know, where Margaret Barr used to say things like, oh, Gary, 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 Gary. <laughs> <laughs> the Carmina Burana and the Cartuli Carmina, I know every single bloody beat of it. That, you know, we heard it, that's what we did it to. But I can do it now. And she said to me, I said, oh, yes, Kate. All the lyrical stuff in the world. Not a dynamic bone in your body, she used to say to me. <laughs> Which is extraordinary teaching, isn't it? Because, I mean, like directors, you want to sort of cajole your students. And, and of course, and I'd that. been taught ballet. So I was yeah. always I was turned out from the hip, you know. Mm. And I was kind of this incredibly straight back. And these sort of, and, and of course, and... And that was not, you know, the... Da, 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 yeah. da. <laughs> that was not the kind of dancing I was meant to be doing. Anyway, it was pretty funny. And um, and I've always had a kind of... I've always looked at things from a distance. You know what I mean? I've not... Um, it's, it's been good and bad, that, but I've always actually recorded... It's like being a camera. You know what I mean? I kind of look at people and look at things and look what's happening and, and almost camera. yes uh, yeah without sometimes maybe um participating enough mm. i think so i had quite a fun time doing that and the letters i wrote home to my mother are hilarious like long letters just as all the stuff i said to jim sharman and so one day someone said you've got to go and get something from mid tote for i don't know a prop or something and so i went upstairs first time i'd ever been in mid tote got to the top of the stairs and there was directly opposite me with its back to the old club, you know, the little white, with the door open was an office and sitting behind the desk was this long-haired bloke that I used to talk to every day. I'd spoken to him that morning and I went, ah! <laughs> I was so shocked. And I went downstairs and said, who's that? And they said, oh, that's Jim Sharman. He's a director. He, you know, did the, he's directing a play at the moment at the, and I knew that he, I'd told him everything. Because I had no one else really to talk to except Rex. So you'd pass comment on the teachers oh, and fellow absolutely. students. Absolutely. You know, to a degree. Because <laughs> I'm very, very, sen you know, what their personalities were like, how they conducted things. Well, you had to unload, I guess. There was nobody else. That you had no one else to talk to except yeah. except Rover. And he was a, he was going through it himself. Rover. Rover is what we call Rex. Oh, oh of course. Yeah, because... I think Willie, William Young said that Rex was a dog's name, so we called him Rover. It was a joke about that. Yeah. But, um, and so after that, I avoided him. You know, I used to sort of see if he was on the corner of the street and not walk down the street with him. And then I, because we, we used to do the front of house and the um, understudying, you know, the, that's how I met Jackie Weaver. I was her understudy when I was at NIDA. 
and she got sick and I went on. But schoolmistress. Yes. Yeah. And um, and she she played Dinah Rankling and she said, My name is Dinah Rankling. My father is Admiral Rankling and his ship, the Pandora, has never run into anything. So Daddy's a very distinguished man, you see. <laughs> <laughs> and I used, to, I used to imitate her voice and she used to go cross-eyed when she said never run into anything like that. Like, totally... And uh, I wish we had a visual <laughs> on this audio. <laughs> and so I, I, I absolutely watched and watched and watched her and um, knew everything. And I'm quite a bit taller than her. And they suddenly rang me and they said, you're on tonight, Saturday night, yeah, big night. Yeah. I said, and I wasn't worried about not knowing the moves or the lines or anything. And the costume ladies added a frill around the bottom of the dress because we were kind of the same size. And um, Ron Reed. And it was this incredible dress like a Victorian wedding cake, you know. It had birds, like white kind of doves, feathered doves on one shoulder and roses on it. It was amazing dress. And uh, I was on stage doing, doing it. And all these people around, I think Ron Hadrick and, and um, Clarissa Kay, I think, played the schoolmistress. Like fantastic actors in it. And they were all laughing, you know, on stage. At the interval, I said, "I said, look, why are you laughing?" They said, "Why are you going cross-eyed?" I said, "Because she does." <laughs> but she has a bit of a. She's told the story herself. Oh. She has a bit of a cast in one eye that she uses for comic effect. Oh right. And so what she does is just slightly, you know, when she wants the audience to laugh, she just kind of does this thing, and I just took it as you know doing that. <laughs> that was the blocking. <laughs> but because um, she's very clever, you know, she was very clever then. So that's how I met her, and we, and she's only six months older than me, but, but I was her understanding. She was a star. I think she was already married to her first husband. She was like so exotic I couldn't believe it. But, um, and we became very good friends after that. And how wonderful that she's achieved the height she oh has. Oh my God, it's like later in life, later in her career. Unbelievable. Yeah. It made all the all the sad old bags like me to think, oh my God. But of course, it's like winning the lotto. You know what I mean? It's so rare that such a thing could happen. And it's fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. She gave us all hope for a minute. Then we all went, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> one never knows. Well, one doesn't. But Can we talk about a couple of seminal Australian works and productions that you've been yeah, a part sure. of? The Legend of King O'Malley. Yeah. Well, that um, was fab. And see, that happened. Do you know how that happened? No. We, After being out of NIDA, I got straight out and went, I made a couple of TV, did a, quite a bit of TV and a couple of movies and and a play or something. I mean, I immediately started working. And then they said, would you like to come back and do a third year course? And see, Rex, because we remained incredibly close. And I'd had, by this time, Jim and I, we'd, and I'd not seen Jim for a year or something, two years. And Rex said, I'm going to do it. And Willie, who, who was... Um, used to hang around with us but he'd not even gone to NIDA he was going to go and do it as well and so what they, it was for people it was the first third year kind of course and at the end of it we were to do three plays and um and John Bell was you know going to direct one and you know it was all it was all we we're going to do all these courses and do all this stuff and work on this musical play the main one as well as the other two one of which was Willie's. Willie had written one called 10,000 Miles Away about a space journey. Um, anyway, what happened was that we, Rex really wanted me to do it. And 
Gillian Jones and Nick Lathouris and Terry O'Brien and David Cameron and me and John Paramore and and Willie William Yang. I was still calling Willie because that's what he was called then. Rex and Robin Nevin. And that was it. And so we started this and she'd gone through in the first Nevin had gone through in the first group. Oh the very first very first, very first like yes, years before us. Right. And um so so it's always been very good for her because she joined this group and everyone thinks that she's a contemporary of ours, but in fact she was not. You know, we'd gone through together, but she, but we did this third year thing and during the course of it we learned all these kind of tricks and things that, to do with Acrobatics it. and yeah, yeah, juggling. Yeah, or, yeah. yeah. And, um, Sword swallowing. Well, well, that was so funny because they were the, you know, the Pamela Stevenson that year of that was at NIDA at the time in second year. They became the people that did the foyer things so it was like a sideshow like a sideshow when they came out after you went in you went into the church hall in this tiny little church the one that Patrick White came to see four times or something and it was just like a little church hall and it was an old time revival religion kind of meeting you know where O'Malley kind of because that's what he was in the, originally and then he came out to Australia and found a camber you know just picked the architect chose where it went and he, he said he was a, an American but it, oh, that's right, this, which made Australia illegal, said, but he, he was actually an American, but he pretended to be a Canadian. He said at the moment of his birth, you know, his mother had ridden across, you know, been born in Canada. It was all bullshit. It was just the biggest, fantastic bullshit artist. Yeah. And it's all true. And so we had Body and Ellis, you know, Bob Ellis and, and Michael Body. And so we all had, and John Bell, and we all worked on things together during the course of this extraordinary kind of year. And it got to the um, end of the thing, and the first part was the, in the old time revival thing, and then in interval the audience would go out, and the whole foyer and out in the street and everything. They had snake charmers and half men, half women, and sword swallowers and fire eaters, and people were going holy. God. And when they came back in, we did a little hornpipe. Oh no, that's right. No, yes, we did a little hornpipe, and then I became Miss Australia. You know the kind of chorus girl, Turner Central Chorus Girl, who sang this song saying, You there, you Australians, you lean brown and tall and given to be it. Two, three, four. You know, I count my little dance out. <laughs> and a very small part, but a wonderful kind of costume that was put on a daguerreotype poster. So printed in brown on brown of me going like this sort of with all my tits out. And I swear to God, it was on every loo door in the whole of the country. It just became this, from this tiny little... 10 day people were lining around the block trying to get in to see it it just became a phenomenon we well, went on a national tour didn't you oh yeah, yeah. So. well they had to move us they moved us to the parade first right. because it was such a, they just cleared everything put us in there for like 10 weeks or something absolutely packed up then we went on a tour around australia only playing huge venues you know all over for a year or whatever and then we came back and we had another season and it was amazing so it was a mix of musical and Brechtian and vaudeville. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And it was fun, you know, yeah. and it was just rubbish, irreverent rubbish. And really, and we all played polish. I mean, except for doing the hornpipe, or that we all played these old-time religion people. So I was a woman in that, and I was kind of a girl and doing the hornpipe, and I did Miss Thingbob. The rest of the time we were Australian politicians, you know, kind of dressed as blokes mm. and clowns. And, and we actually went down to... Um, 
to the central market to listen to this woman who spoke in tongues down there. She'd go, Walla Walla Marinda, like this, you know, she's doing this stuff. And so we, because we had all that crap in the first part of the, um, <laughs> of the show. So we did, we had a really interesting time doing it. I wonder about the Rocky Horror Show, because you played Magenta. I did. Yeah. And the ice cream seller. Well, see, Jim and, Jim and I, by this time, we became really good friends when he was doing hair. This when we kind of became actual friends, and uh, as opposed to just being me gossiping about everyone that I was with. So during the season of hair in Sydney and then in Melbourne, and he became very famous, you know, very big, and we were close, and somehow... Oh, that's right, he was asked to do the Srutney Opera at the opening of the Opera House. And so he, he, he said, I want you to play Polly. And I said, I don't want to play Polly, I want to play Jenny, and I want to sing the great song, wear a black dress and do the tango, and that's it. And he said, I know he just thinks I'm an airhead to this day, but he says, no, 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 Polly's got ten costumes, and they were beautiful costumes, and you know she's got six songs, and you know she's the lead, and blah, and I said, no, I don't want to do it. And the only time we ever fought was that I fought with Rex once over doing a solo curtain call for the Lady of the Camellias because I didn't like doing solo, solo calls. But you were the star. I know, that's what he said. And he said, it's the Lady of the Camellias. I mean, it, to see him getting agitated was really funny because he was so calm. You know, he very rarely lost it. He actually lost it. it was I, I laughed at him. Anyway, <laughs> so I kind of, I let Ivor walk me halfway down and then I walked down further. I finally gave in but in London I remember arriving in London and I was living at Jim's place and um, and he met me at the airport and he took me down a staircase near the court the Royal Court and it was the musical director's house I was straight off the plane where it was like 24 hours on the plane or whatever it was and he made me sing like this guy played the piano R Richard Hartley the great Richard Hartley played the and I had to sing all of Polly's songs and I said, I don't want to play Polly. I'm like, you know, I mean, so we argued and argued. We went, he was living in Pimlico, just over the bridge from the court. And um, I mean, I was living in his flat with him, but I was going out with all of them. I had a few fancy friends that I was having the most fantastic. <laughs> and he was doing, rehearsing uh, Rocky for upstairs at the court. And th But then they moved Rocky to the Chelsea Classic from down the King's Road, you know, from uh, from upstairs at the court. So I saw it upstairs in the, like in the attic. I saw it there a couple of times, and then they moved With it. Tim Curry and Patricia yeah, Queen. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, everyone. And then we then they opened at the, and Nell and so, and they opened at the um, and Richard was playing of course. Richard O'Brien. Yeah, it was riff raff. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so then they opened, and the night after they opened, we flew to back to Sydney to start rehearsing the Sripney Opera to open the Opera House. So um, I, I remember us, we're still arguing about, but he finally gave in and said, all right, you can play Jenny. And he cast Pamela Stevenson to play, as Polly. And um, rehearsals are going all right. I remember one day he walked in and me singing The Black Freighter and in a room with, with Patrick and Patrick, not Patrick White, Patrick, uh, the conductor. And he said, you're singing that song as if you want it to happen. And I said, yes, so? <laughs> and he said, you should be singing it as if you know it's going to. And I said, 
right. And that was it. I think that was about all he ever had to tell me because I completely understood that he was right. I was doing a play at the, what's called the, the Nimrod, you know, yeah, which is... Which is um, now the Griffin. Yeah, it, well, you know, the original space we called we called the Nimrod, which is now the stable and the Griffin, isn't yes, it? Yes, yes, yes. Right. And so I did things like Hamlet on Ice and stuff there mm. and Shadows of Blood and all this Rex plays. And then we moved to, virtually, when I say we, like a lot of, because, of course, it was um, John Bell and... Um, and and um, Ken and so on, and a group of actors. And we did a lot of plays at the old jam factory, which was then called the Nimrod, that then became the Belvoir. Oh, again, okay. sorry, else. Mm. Mm. So, um, so we're doing this play, and it was, it was a very odd play. Kim Carpenter, the wonderful Kim Carpenter, designed it. I said, I've got these fabulous shoes that... Um, that maybe, you know, they're right period, because I hope it was wearing period costume. Oh, my God, what was it called? Was it Three Sisters? Right? No, it wasn't Three Sisters. It was this Canadian play where this woman thought she was one of the one Three of the Sisters. Mm. Yeah. I think Irina, actually. But, but no, I think maybe Marsha. I don't know. And um, and it was set on a slope. The set was a slope. And it was very, very strange. It was in the African jungle that where it was placed. And so I gave him, he said, oh, they're perfect. They're the most beautiful shoes, he said, and painted them white. Painted them white. And it, I mean, it was mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Like, you know, they were kind of, oh, my God. Absolutely shocking. <laughs> I was literally speechless. But I've worn a lot... I did a play with Richard Werrett called uh, Right Across Lake Constance, inst- interestingly enough, um, Peter Hunker, who they reckon is a kind of Nazi. Well, I never knew that about him, but I loved that play. It was wonderful, and a wonderful part. And I had to wear this evening dress, and it was one of the ones I'd worn in the Jenny Key, Linda Jackson, Hingara Parade. Most, it was antique, sort of slightly gilded, creamy kind of incredibly beautiful lace with this little slip underneath it and a cut on the cross you know it's really incredible and I had to walk down the staircase and she walks down and she numbers them you had to look straight ahead and I think 20 steps she calls it it's in the play and um, I wore that dress because they said oh she has to wear this incredible evening dress I said oh I've got one and that one, the woman who did the um, laundry at the Nimrod at the time, put it in a washing machine with, because the other person in the play was um, Anna Volska, and she was wearing a kind of, you know, rackets blue, like really violent blue sort of, I don't know what on earth it was made of, the dress. And she put this antique lace dress and its petticoat in with her and it came out grey, like dark grey. And I said, could not believe it. Put it in a washing machine for a start. Dear, oh dear. So whenever I've kind of got volunteered my stuff, and since then I usually do the laundry myself. <laughs> what makes you happy? Uh, birds, flowers, trees, my, my son, some of the time. I'm not arguing with him. A travel. I've just come back from Mexico City and I hadn't left the country for, gee, 
15 years or something. So that was fantastic. More than 15 years. I don't think, oh, I hadn't left for 25. So that was pretty shocking and wonderful. He, he was living in Mexico City, so he sent me a ticket. I, I, I'm happy when I work. So I say all those things because I don't work very much. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had time to I smell the roses I have and time, yes, listen to the birds. Exactly. And, yeah. and I've, I had, I've kind of accidentally really looked after two parrots. So I became very close uh, with them. Do you have any regrets? Yeah, lots. Yeah, We all have we, regrets, yeah, don't we? Really? Well, I think people who are telling the truth have Don't you reckon? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I do. Uh, and I kind of... I think Rex dying was a shocking thing for me. You know, it was kind of a... Uh, he, he started to do Don Juan because he said I'd played queens and princesses and movie stars and all these people, but I'd never played a man. So he, so he cast me as Don Juan. And it was the last thing he did at the Seymour Centre. And um, he, he died of you know, a couple of months later, not, not much lo later. And, and I was so cross with him for time. <laughs> he was cross about it. Uh, it was terrible. We, we, we talked about how angry we were, that it, he was leaving me or he was leaving at all. He was very cross about it, very upset about it. So it was a dreadful. But he was a great friend, I guess, but also a great champion of you oh, and your work. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I... I had never auditioned for anything until I was 40 and I ran away to England. And that's mainly because Rex, of course, you know, I did so much for him. And, and I, other people gave me jobs from that, or Jim, you know what I mean? I, mostly it was them. So it was very shocking because <laughs> yeah. I'm not good at it. And we were never trained to do it. It wasn't like today, you know, where they're kind of so, God, it seemed shocking when you see them. How prepared they are and how incredible they are. I don't know. Will there be more name dropping? Well, I would sequel? like to. There's a lot. I mean, I, that stopped at the birth of Joe, and he's 29. So, right. you know, it's kind of there's been well, quite a bit happening since then. Because I've, I've I've just read it. I've caught <laughs> up with it. Name dropping, an incomplete memoir. Um, it's fabulous. I mean, and it, we could talk for another three hours. Oh, I know. Sorry, to I cover the stories. It's yes, fantastic. I know. So um, I hope we I hope we do hear a sequel. See a sequel. Okay. Oh, you, would you like to just continue with more of this, or or do you think I should write something? <laughs> yes, we'll do, we'll do the the radio diaries. Yes. Yeah, the radio diaries. Yeah, it'd be great. I wrote I wrote another book called Airmail. That's forty years of letters between my mother and my sister and I from five continents, and that um, I've written four actually, but that's one that does have a whole lot of NIDA correspondence in it. Okay. Name dropping is print on demand, so you can actually walk into a. You might have to wait two weeks. And the other one, they've just stopped printing unless I buy a certain number. Right. So if I buy 20, they'll print it. But see, they were, I think, 2002 and 2005 or something is when I wrote them. It has been a delight to talk to you today, Kate. <laughs> oh, um, I hope so. And also to, to celebrate this, this final episode of the year. Yes. Happy Christmas. Thank you. Um, Happy Christmas to you. Thank you. It's so lovely to catch up and, um, and thanks for sharing your um, extraordinary career. <laughs> thank you.
What a fabulous conversation to end the year and the second series of Stages. I can't believe we're at episode 99 already. It has been a labour of love and an absolute joy to bring the episodes to you. I must admit it's been a huge year, beginning with the Best New Podcast Award at the Australian Podcast Awards. I'm still pinching myself. Thank you to all of the wonderful guests who have been so generous with their time and spirit and passion. I know that you join me with me in being inspired and entertained by their vast experiences. I've learned heaps and I know that you have too. So thank you for subscribing, downloading and listening to the podcast. It is an absolute joy to be producing it. I think we've certainly found an appreciative listenership and I look forward to bringing you many more exciting episodes in 2020. Stages will be taking a break now over January and returning on Thursday, February 6th with the first three episodes featuring very special guests who you won't want to miss. I know because the episodes are recorded and I'll be working on them over the break. I promise they're wonderful. So, um, I'm so excited.